We are trying to get everyone to take control of the piece of the earth that they own, which is their yard, and say, okay, you can use your yard to help the, the pollinator population. You really, you know, are we going to be able to stop our neighbors from using different chemicals, you know, and, and pesticides? Probably not. Are we going to be able to stop mono, you know, monoculture ag? Probably not. Neonicotinoids? Probably not. But we do control our yard. And therefore, what is the best way to use that's that little slice of the earth that we own? It is to plant native plants. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with David Levine, who has made a career of invention and serial entrepreneurship. In 2005, David co-founded Wireless Environment to revolutionize the lighting industry with a belief that off-grid wireless LED lighting would be the future of lighting. And over the next 13 years, David proved out that exact thesis as he led the organization as CEO to over 30 million in sales on just 1.1 million in equity raised and ultimately to acquisition by Ring in 2017 and subsequently to Amazon in 2018. And there are some truly incredible stories that David shares about this entire experience building, growing, and exiting wireless environment. Post-acquisition, with the time now to reflect and to focus on what challenge to tackle next and to think through what he ultimately wants to provide to the world, David shifted his focus to natural habitat restoration and his longtime fascination with bees, whose populations are waning and whose endangerment is highly consequential to our food supply and planet at large. In the spirit of this problem, David joined forces with his co-founder, Wyatt Shell, to start My Home Park in 2021 to revolutionize how people view their yards and empower them to use their yards to restore the environment. My Home Park is a platform that creates curated gardens delivered right to customers' doorsteps, taking the guesswork, the effort, and the frustration out of landscaping with native plants. For those who want to do something beneficial for the environment, planting native plant gardens is the highest order impact you can have on the environment per dollar spent. Knowing that in just 100 square feet, native plants feed up to 2,000 pollinators per day, conserve 2,300 gallons of water per year, and provide 16 times greater soil stabilization. And my home park facilitates this entire process. David is an inspiring entrepreneur, and this conversation is packed full of wisdom. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with David Levine after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, 
Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. I was thinking about where the best place to start would be and and knowing that my home park is the third venture that you have embarked on. I, I personally am fascinated by serial entrepreneurship and the mindset of those who've opted to re-embark on the, the most difficult journey to, to build something formidable and, and valuable from scratch. And so I'd love to you know, understand where your entrepreneurial drive stems from. It, it, was it something innately that you always had this enterprising spirit or is it something you developed over time? How is it that, that you came to, to want to, to do this? I think my enterprising spirit definitely came from my, my dad. He was a, a person who was marginally hireable, I say. So that's what makes him a good uh, entrepreneur. <laughs> he was a pharmacist with a entrepreneur's mind. And, you know, he, he had something really bad happen to him when he was, and when I say really bad, business-wise, really bad, when he was, I'd say he was in his mid-30s. And he had become a partner with his father in a drugstore in Massapequa Park, New York, which is on Long Island. And my grandfather retired, his dad retired. So he brought on a new partner, someone he knew, and they didn't get along. So they went to a lawyer's office and they flipped a coin to see who got to buy who out of the store. And the store was named after the family, Levine's Park Pharmacy in Massapequa Park. And he lost. So he, you know, he got some money out of it, but he then had to find a job and he started working as a pharmacist at a supermarket when the supermarkets first had drugstores in them. And he was miserable. He couldn't work for anybody. And on the weekends, we would travel all over the Northeast looking for a store to buy. The crazy story is that he was going to stay behind during spring break. And my family, my mom took the three kids to uh, Disney World. This is 1978, say. So he was driving Mm -hmm. us to the airport. He was going to He told his employer he was going with us, but he was going to stay behind and look for a store. On the way to the airport, we got a flat tire on the way to uh, JFK Airport. So scrambled, hailed a cab, got to the airport at the very last minute. And because uh, we were late, we got all split up. And my mom was sitting next to someone on the plane and they started talking. He's like, oh, my my Uncle Lou has two drugstores in Western Massachusetts he's selling. And uh, we landed. My mom called my dad. And he wound up buying the store, and it was a it was a small store in a small New England town, but it was the center of the town. There were no chains there, and it was great for me starting when I was eleven years old, just doing every job in that store, understanding the importance of customer service, understanding the need for innovation. Uh, while I was there, he had the the town's first video rental store, for instance. He was he was always thinking like that, and. Then he started um, putting video rental stores in, uh, in different forts throughout the and, and uh, marine bases. It just he was he. I watched his mind and I said, you know, that's what I, I think is exciting about business is coming up with these these ideas. 
And then the, the, the next most influential thing that happened to me, Jeffrey, was at college, I started a magazine with uh, a friend who's still one of my best friends to this day. And that process of hiring people, selling ads, doing layout, all the, you know, the content, the business side, uh, managing a team, inspiring a team, that was a, the next most influential part of my entrepreneurial journey. So the, the, I'll say the focus of which problems you've chosen to spend time working on solving is quite large. You know, it's, it's, it, it covers a lot of different things. Is that just a consequence of you being curious in a lot of, like when we're talking about the breadth of problems from, you know, magazines to lighting to uh, lawns and, and the environment, which we'll get to, is there a thread that ties these together? How, how is it that you've become interested in the problems that you're trying to solve? It's a good question that I haven't thought about, but it's, it's finding white space has become like something I'm just innately capable of doing. And depending on how agitated I am by the problem depends on how much energy I have to solve it. So right now, and we'll get into it, we're trying to save bees and other pollinators. That is a big driving force. I don't want my kids to run out of food. But, you know, uh, the, the lighting was because my grandmother had, had tripped on the way to the bathroom because she didn't want to turn, off, turn on a light and disturb her sleep. That was pretty agitating to me. And uh, before that, power tools, that was less of um, that was more of an opportunity that I found interesting in, in my first foray into starting my own company. So did you have a vision immediately stem from that incident with the, the trip and fall as it related to, to wireless environment and, and, and Mr. Beams? Or how is it that you approach this identification of white space and you know, creating a, an idea and a vision for the future and a corresponding business? Yeah, that was interesting because you had nightlights, right? Why, why do you need a product when you have nightlights? The, the issue with nightlights were twofold. One, uh, they're on all night or they're, they're not, right? You either leave them on and they disturb your sleep or you don't. And number two is you can't put them anywhere you don't have a, an outlet. So, you know, the, my partner, Mike Recker, and I just started thinking about that. Well, what if you could just slap it anywhere and it only turned on when it detected motion? That to us seemed like a big enough idea. And then when we started extrapolating it, well, you know, closets, that was another big issue for us. We both had closets with no lights. You would live in an old house and I'm sure, you know, to wire a closet in, in your house would be a disaster. So we came up with a $20 closet light that works like, you know, the, the, what you have in a hotel. When you open the door, the light goes on and then when you close it, it eventually goes off. That, you know, that, that one felt like, okay, there's both safety issues, there's utility issues, and it felt like a really good space at the time. Did you have a sense at the point where you began to actually build the product of what it would become, you know, fast forwarding to an acquisition to, to Ring and subsequently to Amazon? Was that, you know, part of the, the vision at all, or was it really just you know, one step in, in front of the other? It was, you know, somewhat desperation. My first venture had failed and I, I, needed, to do, I needed to do something else. And I realized I was not going to be a good fit for someone else's, someone else's company. But 
I didn't think big enough at that time. I was more in survival mode. I just wanted to create some products that people responded well to and that, that had an impact on them. It wasn't until later till I started adding some bigger thinkers. You know, part of it was Jumpstart. Part of it was some of my board members that they started saying, start with the exit in mind and then, and then work your way backwards. And, you know, mostly from, from some conversations with uh, people at Jumpstart, and Jumpstart was one of our investors, it was, well, if you looked at yourself as a technology play instead of a hardware play, Jeffrey, you know, like that, what does that look like? What does a hardware play? And that was that we heard that from them right after they rejected us. Jumpstart rejected us for the first time. And Mike and I went over to the Barking Spider. Do you, do you, have you ever been there? It's uh, on Case Western. It used to be great little spot. I, I haven't been actually. It's like a, it's an old stable, I think, that was a bar at the time. And we're sitting outside having a beer, kind of, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves. And Mike looked up at this, you know, this old, very old brick barn and said, what if you needed to put a light on a building like this and you needed to control it, but it's just too expensive to wire, what would you do? And that just was like this moment where we started thinking about, okay, if LED lights get more and more efficient and they can be run, more applications can be run off of battery power and wireless communication gets better, how many applications could a wireless light cover? And, and that moment was essential for us in thinking bigger and eventually building a whole patent portfolio, building a fence around this idea of wireless lighting. And that's what got uh, Jamie Simonoff, the, the founder of Ring, so interested in us. So one of the things that I've been very interested to get your perspective on, particularly, I think, in the context of the somewhat inflated you know, market and valuations that, that we've seen over the last few years, and companies, I think, prioritizing growth at, at all expense you know, relative to viable business economics, was that you, know, you were able to grow this business from zero to... 30 plus million dollars in, in revenue off, off of a considerable amount of equity, but orders of magnitude smaller than I think what we're seeing today in a, in a bootstrapped capacity. Right. It was, yeah, 1.1 million is the amount of equity we raised. We did have some, some loans as well. What is your philosophy around bootstrapping and, and the importance of it and the strategies that allowed for you to be successful in, in growing? the business? Bootstrapping was essential for two reasons. One, it allowed us to maintain control and, and decision-making. And Mike and I, when we started the company, we, we made a pact, like no matter what we do, you and I have to maintain the decision-making. You know, I, so, so many times, and I, I worked for two big companies, first Dow Chemical for four years, and then uh, Black & Decker DeWall for four years. Loved it. Great experience. But I always felt like I could make better decisions than the people who were making decisions. So that was like our, our, our mantras, just whatever it is, we have to maintain decision making control. And the, the other side is like we realized early on that if you have money, you're going to waste it, that there was no better way to grow a company in our situation than to set a milestone 
raise enough money to hit that milestone, put our heads down, reach the milestone, pick our heads up, say, oh, we're, you know, we, we now have a product to sell. Let's raise a little bit more money at a slightly higher valuation. Then, you know, go out, start selling the product, get some sales results, pick our heads up again. Okay, we think we're, you know, we can do this again. We were raising chunks of about $300,000 at a time. It kept us super focused. We did not waste money. We did not even consider anything that wouldn't pay off directly. Now, you know, again, smaller vision than most people. Uh, Compare us to Ring. And when Jamie Siminoff started Ring, I believe he raised off the bat about $300 million and built this company very rapidly. I, I, I couldn't believe when I saw their numbers how many $250 video doorbells they were selling, especially since a doorbell, a regular doorbell costs about $8.99 at Home Depot. But people were paying it, but they grew super fast. That was their goal. But he put himself in some risky situations. There were a lot of mistakes. The company wasn't profitable. So we were just a different method. You know, I mean, it's like the the West Coast style versus what I, I see as more of a Midwest style. But we did not waste money. Wasting money also is a waste of time. You can, when you have the money, you're going to go in a wrong direction many times. So it, it, it was essential for us and we still operate that way. We, you know, we, we sweat right now over, you know, $300 expenses that we're, we're considering. So uh, I just feel like uh, for me, I'd rather do it a little slower and maintain control and maintain, you know, uh, and, and maintain our, our focus than, uh, than go off with some big number. I, I, I would be scared if, if I all of a sudden saw like a million dollars in my bank account. I think I, I think I'd go, you know, I'd go crazy, Jeffrey. I'd be dangerous. <laughs> well, there, there's something that resonates, which is that constraint is somewhat requisite to the innovative process, right? Without constraints, it's hard to know how to focus. I, no, I agree, and look, I've, I've I've been able to witness a lot of startups, and there are areas I see where I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like customizing. A software package, right? Like spending $200,000 to customize a software package so it works better for you. These are some of the signs when I see, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not betting on on this company. It should be, you know, it should be innovation and maybe patenting, but patenting is a terrible situation for most companies. And it it was for us until we figured it out, you know, in, in sales, and not business development. I can't stand that term business development. It's sales. It's going out and selling, right? That's why, like, that's where the money should be spent. <laughs> Innovation uh, and the product, the product market fit, and then going out and selling it, but not marketing it as much, right? It, there's a big difference. Yeah. It's, it's a euphemism, business development. I agree. Well, kind of keeping us progressing through the, the evolution of, of wireless environment and, and Mr. Beams, you find a home with Ring and, and subsequently a home with Amazon. Yeah. Can you just kind of walk us through both those yeah. you know, acquisition processes and, and what, what, what that was like? As I mentioned, so wireless environment was a 12-year overnight success. You know, we really, we had steady growth from zero to 
to, as you said, over $30 million in the wireless lights under the Mr. Beams brand. We, along the way, we, we built up a, a really interesting patent portfolio. And, you know, after 12 years, Mike and I were looking at each other and saying, okay, it's probably time to start thinking about an exit. We weren't sure how to do it. We had kind of talked to M&A people over the years and they gave us an estimate of what they thought we might be worth. And it never seemed worth, you know, it never seemed like high enough to, to make us want to spend a lot of time there. So my brother-in-law, my wife's brother lives out in Malibu and he does CrossFit out there. And he calls me one day and says, I, one of my friends in CrossFit helped start ring doorbell. Are you interested in talking to them? And we had been on um, Home Shopping Network right around the time. It was like, you know, I, I, I would go on there and sell some lights and, and Ring was on there. And I couldn't believe how many they were selling. And I had been hearing stories about how sales were. So I said, of course. So we connected. They connected me to Jamie Simonoff, who a lot of people know from Shark Tank. He was a founder of Ring. Brilliant entrepreneur. Really, really good product person really big thinker. And we just talked on the phone and Jamie said, you know, we spot Shaq is one of our guys. The Cavs were hosting playoffs at that point. He flew in, we had a good meeting and it just went, it went pretty fast from there. And I had never done this before. So I hired a friend uh, who was in my study group at business school, who's out in you know the Valley and, and does a lot of software deals. And I said to him, can you recommend someone who could help us uh, represent us for this deal? And he said, I want to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you with this and we're going to get this done. He had uh, helped Macromedia sell to uh, Adobe. Uh, he had been on some big deals and he had sold a lot of smaller companies. So he had good experience. So at one point, we laugh about this. He said to me, uh, Ring gave us a, an offer. And I was like, yeah, this is a pretty good offer. He said to me, no, no, you can't just take this offer. You have to shop the deal around. And I said, Brian, we, you, this is, well, if Jamie finds out that we're shopping this deal around, he's going to, you know, he's going to flip. He's a very emotional, very emotional guy. He's a very reactive guy. So he said, don't worry. They're not going to know. Here's how you do it. So he tells me, go on LinkedIn and look at all the competitors and try to get to the CEOs and tell them that you have an offer from a company and that you think that they'd be good, you know, they'd be a good acquirer for us. And so these were companies like, let's see, Netlink and the home networking company. And there were a bunch of companies. I reached out to them and two of them responded to me. And so I think Comcast was one of them said, yeah, let's, you know, let's talk a little bit more. We had a couple of conversations. So this is all happening over the course of like a Friday. <laughs> one of them says to me, come out on Monday and let's, let's talk. So one, one other piece of this is after Brian convinced me this was the right thing to do, I went home and told my wife and we had been in Nantucket visiting Jamie and his wife had a nice time. And I told her what we were doing. And she said, you're crazy. If Jamie finds out this is going to crater the deal. And I said to her, you know, I'm caught between what Brian's saying and you're saying. So I get Brian on the phone and in this conversation, it got a little heated. And he said to my wife, Lisa, how many $200 million deals have you closed? 
And it was like, I was like, whoa, this is getting pretty whoa. serious. So um, we went ahead, you know, and I set up this meeting for the Monday uh, with this company on the West Coast. And Saturday night, Lisa and I are at a nice Indians game. It's a warm night. They're playing the Yankees. I'm enjoying myself. And the phone rings. It's Jamie. And Jamie, I said, hey, Jamie. I ran up so I could hear him. I ran up from the, you know, from the stand. And he is screaming at me. How dare you use me as a as a stalking horse? What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? This deal is off. Yelled at me for about five minutes, told me the wow. deal was off, and that was it. So you can imagine me going back to my seat with, with uh, my wife, Lisa, and explain to her what just happened after, you know, she and she had been told me, like, we shouldn't be doing this. Anyhow, the next day, Jamie called me back and raised the offer and said, let's just get this done. So, you know, deals have a way of blowing up <laughs> multiple times. This one absolutely did. Um, I'm still kind of amazed that it worked out that way and Brian was right, but it really still feels like it, it could have blown up easily. It could have blown up easily. So we got the deal done. We used, uh, someone recommended we use Jones Day, which was uh, like an amazing experience for me. Those guys are just pros at getting this deal done. And we got the deal done November 1st, 2017. Two days later, Ring, who had bought this uh, alarm business that was working with ADT, two days later, Ring was told by a federal court to remove its alarm product from the shelves because they had violated the um, intellectual property or, or, or property, let's just say, and assets of ADT by buying this company that ADT had funded. And and Jamie called me that day. So you know, this was two days after, it was like 36 hours after our deal closed. And he said to me, he told yeah. me what happened. He said, don't worry about it. We got it. But if we if this had happened before we closed your deal, we wouldn't have closed your deal. We, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So wow. the timing was really uh, <laughs> quite crazy. And then, so Jamie came back in January and we're, we went to another Cavs game with his family. And we're waiting in line at whatever the B spot is where the Cavs play. And he said to me, we're getting bought by Amazon. We're just waiting in line. He says, casually said, we're getting bought by Amazon. And it just was incredulous. And I guess the, the most interesting thing for me was we had a small team. We were about 23 people at Wireless running this $30 million business. Most everyone had like grown up in Ohio, never left the state of Ohio. You know, it wasn't like a, a well-traveled and, and um, you know, experienced team. So I had to first break the, uh, the news to them, you know, November, right around November 1st. We're getting bought by Ring and, you know, Santa Monica, California, and what could that could mean. Then, three, you know, three months later, breaking the news. Uh, by the way, we're now working for Amazon, Seattle, Washington. You know, it was, it, was, it was interesting. I think they were better prepared the second time because of that. But, you know, that, that was quite, you know, to go from 23 people to one of the biggest, fastest growing companies in that quick, that short a period of time was it was everyone's head was spinning. Wow. What a, what a story. <laughs> I want to understand from a place where you are now running the smart lighting business for one of the largest companies in the world. What, 
becomes the the mental you know calculus for deciding to get back into the arena, right? Because that's ultimately what what you've decided to do and, and what you're now working on at at my home park. What was the process of you know finding that that white space and honing in on a on a new problem from there? The first thing was, yeah, what's the right timing to to leave? And I had two two thoughts or two real two factors for for this, Jeffrey. So number one was I want to we we had a three year burnout. I had to stay three years in order for our friends and family investors to get paid out fully. So I knew, you know, I knew I had to get get kind of comfortable in the situation because I. I Three years at the time seemed very long, and it, it actually was very long, or, you know, working for a big company <laughs> all of a sudden. And the second thing was I want to make sure all our employees are taken care of. That I knew would take, take some time, just figuring out the system, getting integrated into Ring first, and then Amazon, and then uh, making sure everyone had opportunities that were beyond our little office, you know, here in, in Mayfield Village, Ohio. So um, both of those kept me busy and, and they, were, they were rewarding in the sense that, you know, I felt like I was, I was doing something for somebody. On a side note, like of the 23, 24 people we had, 19 are still there. So this is five and a half years later, are still there working for Amazon, moving up, you know, Amazon levels you L4, L5, L6. They've moved up summer L7s and making so much more. My friend who I had coffee with this week was a communications major out of Ohio State and what didn't really know what she wanted to do. We hired her because she was a bank teller at one point and she had experience, you know, obviously counting money. So we put her in charge of shipping and now she's making crazy salary. As she told me, I was just like, it's, you're like probably making more than, you know, than most of the people who graduated from Ohio State Business School now. And that is really rewarding. So that was one of the reasons why I was, you know, able to stay. But um, I kind of had to so we could all get paid out. And I started thinking about, okay, what's the next widget? I kept coming up with new, you know, widgets. I, at this point, I had a, a history with lighting, battery-powered products, electronics, communication, wireless communication, smart home. There's a lot, right? There's a lot of more agitation, agitations to solve. Uh, you know, I just, it hit me like this B thing is, is starting to get out of control. The, the B population is, is dying. People aren't really sure why, you know, th- there aren't a lot of people putting, you know, entrepreneurial solutions towards it. And I had this vision of building a better bee house, right? You have bird houses. And then I saw that bees can live in houses too. And I started thinking about, could I make really inexpensive bee houses that, you know, people could put up and then the bees, the solitary bees lay their cocoons in these little tubes in the houses, and then you can harvest them and move the cocoons around and things like that. So I started pursuing that. And luckily a friend from way back, had coffee with him and he's like, Oh, by the way, my, my daughter is dating a bee expert. He's getting his PhD in wild bees. Are you interested in talking to him and my daughter too? And it's cause she works with honeybees. And I said, absolutely. We had a call and uh, like there's the two of the nicest people I know. 
And they delicately told me that this bee house idea was terrible, a disaster <laughs> waiting to happen for a lot of reasons. But they, the, uh, the, the person who is now my partner, his name is Wyatt Shell. He said to me, I've had this idea about how to motivate people to save bees by planting native plants and gamifying it. So can we work on that idea together? And I said, absolutely. And just started this super invigorating educational process on what are native plants? How can you actually turn this into a scalable business? And, you know, what are the, what are the needs out there that um, allow me to have this potential opportunity? So uh, we started digging into that. We, you know, Wyatt was part-time, I was full-time and then Wyatt left his job in academia. And I, I was a little worried, like, can he be a good entrepreneur? And he's turned out to be an unbelievable entrepreneur. So uh, that's where we are. We now have a third employee who uh, recently graduated from Stanford uh, with an MBA, and she's doing our marketing. I won't call it business development. She's, <laughs> she's doing great, too. So it's the three of us right now trying to get traction. I think it's a, a fascinating problem. I think it would be really cool to under, you know, we, we hear about the bees, right, and, and the, the problem, but I don't know that myself or, or a lot of people fully grasp the, the implications of what is this problem, what are the effects it, it has on us, what's the history of it, and, and when you layer on top of that, you know, yards, gardens, lawn care, native plants, what, what, what is the, the confluence of those two areas and how people's relationships to their yards the combination of all these things that's allowed for you to embark on this my home park journey. You know, native plants, just to for the definition, are plants that were here ten thousand years ago or more. They've evolved here, and as such, the native bees, beneficial insects, butterflies, and when we say pollinators, all evolve with these plants. So they use these plants for food to reproduce on. And in turn, when they are diving into the flowers of these plants, they are now pollinating other plants. And it's, it's how about 33% of our food is, you know, is maintained, our food sources, through pollination from, from insects. So there's two types. Uh, when, if we focus on bees, there's really two types of bees. There's uh, solitary bees, also known as wild bees, and then there's more there's the dom domesticated invasive bees, which are honeybees. Uh, and the honeybees get all the attention. When people think of bees, they think of, you know, these bees that live in hives and, you know, live in, in colonies and have a whole society together. But the most effective bees actually come from, they're, they're the solitary bees. And they're the ones that live in tubes. Now, these tubes can be holes in old trees. They could be in the ground. But the types of bees are known as mason bees or leaf cutter bees. What's so interesting about them is they gather pollen, they go into a, a hole, and they scrape the pollen off their abdomen, they lay an egg on it, and then they wall it off, and they keep doing that. So you might have six chambers in, in this, and, and they, it's amazing. They have like the, the females are in the back and the males are in the front, so the males can hatch first and then they go, you know, get stronger by getting some food and then the females hatch and they mate and the males are basically done with at that point and they just repeat. 
these bees are really effective because they have to gather a lot of pollen to, you know, to scrape and lay the egg on. Cause when the, when the egg becomes a larvae and then hatches, it eats that pollen cake and then has enough strength to, to go on. So because they're gathering so much and they have these special abdomens that are like Velcro, they are better pollinators. They like a drunken fraternity boy. They dive into a flower, roll around and then dive into the next one. They're just, they're just great pollinators. You know, those bees can live in the, the hollow tubes of the stems of native plants, but mostly they go around and they just evolve with these native plants. And the more native plants you have, the better they do, the more pollinating they do. As we've developed all this land, now all of a sudden you're these native plants like goldenrod and Joe pieweed and uh, wild indigo and columbine and, and geranium, they're, they're harder to find. So that's part of what's going on with the bee population. There's less of their natural habitat, less food, less places for them to reproduce. Then there's also, you know, the um, pesticides that people are using in their lawns that, that carry over. And there's something called neonicotinoids, which are chemicals used in the ag business. And then finally, there's monoculture uh, farming, which means like, you know, you could have a gigantic farm. In the old days, it was a multiple, it was all different types of, of food products, all different types of crops. And, you know, the, the, the insects, the pollinators could pick and choose. But now you have acres and acres of something like corn that doesn't need to be pollinated. And it's like a desert for for the pollinators, same thing with your lawn is a desert for the pollinators. There's no food unless you let the clover grow in, as some people do, but like a perfectly maintained lawn like you see in Shaker Heights when you drive through, it's a desert. There's no food. There's you know a lot of chemicals being used, and um, it has hurt the, the bee population. So of, of all the ways you could attempt to positively impact the bee population, you know, obviously you, through this discovery process, learned that maybe bee houses are, are not the best option. And I'd, I'd love to understand why that's the case. But, but why is planting native plants the top impact, highest leverage way that you can, you know, materially affect the, the situation here? Yeah. And that has to do with the name My Home Park. We are trying to get everyone to take control of the piece of the earth that they own, which is their yard, and say, okay, you can use your yard to help the, the pollinator population. You really, you know, are we going to be able to stop our neighbors from using different chemicals, you know, and, and pesticides? Probably not. Are we going to be able to stop mono, you know, monoculture ag? Probably not. Neonicotinoids, probably not. But we do control our yard. And therefore, what is the best way to use that's that little slice of the earth that we own it is to plant native plants. And, you know, I've been looking at this problem, you know, from a, from a, a more like logical manner, what for a hundred dollars, let's say, what's the best thing that I can do for the environment? And I was, you know, working with LED lights. Those things are amazing, right? They, they use about one tenth of the, of the electricity that traditional incandescent lighting does. So that would be the first thing I would do is I would change out as many lights uh, from incandescent or even fluorescent to uh, LED. After that, I can compost. That's very helpful. But it re I, most people are just recycling, which is, you know, me, me coming from Dow Chemical, I know 
that it is a scam perpetrated on the American public uh, recycling. It's not really doing anything to the point that I even encourage my kids now not to recycle anything but glass and, and aluminum. But planting native plants for $100, you can plant, you know, let's say 25 native plants. And that will actually have a big impact on the environment. And if everyone did that, it would have a huge impact on the environment. And these plants are going to grow and develop and become more and more valuable over time. So it just made sense, this, this idea of native plants. And by the way, they're very pretty. Some people think they're kind of messy, but we're, that's where our designs come in, where we're going to design it for you so it looks like it belongs there. If, if you have a small space, we're going to keep them low. If you have a fence, we'll let them grow a little higher. But they, they actually are, are beautiful. So what is my home park? How would you describe the company and the goal and the vision? We're trying to get people to buy landscaping online. And it, the, by landscaping, it's really just it's plants. We're not selling any kind of hardscaping or uh, even right now we're not selling trees or shrubs. We're selling perennials, native perennials. And we want to make it like any other home product you would buy. Okay, let's use a sofa as an example, Jeffrey. So you go online and you say, okay, I need something that's six to eight feet wide and I like these fabrics and I like these colors and they should, you know, you filter it down, you have all these sofas you can buy. We're trying to make buying plants for your front yard the same way. Instead of thinking like I have to design this whole plan, this whole cohesive plan, we're saying, no, look at your front yard like your living room and drop a sofa in and see how it looks and live with it for a while. And then add a couple of chairs over here on a table. We're looking at modular landscaping where we're designing these products, just like you design a sofa. You want, uh, you know, the, the way people are doing it right now, it would be the equivalent if you're buying a sofa saying, okay, I'm going to go to this store and buy the fabric. I'm going to go to this store and buy the spring. I'm going to go to this store and buy the cushion. And then I'm going to go somewhere else and buy the wood. When you go to a, a nursery, like you're lost, right? Well, I don't know how things fit together. And someone's asking me to buy all these different components. We're saying here's a cohesive garden that's going to look like this. We're going to give you a planting map. We're going to ship these plants to you because we're shipping little plugs that are safe to ship. And we're going to, you know, you're going to drop it in. We're going to give you maintenance tips. We're here if you have any questions. But we are beautifying your yard. And, you know, the, the back door for us is like, okay, now we've got native plants in someone's yard. And, you know, whether they care or not, it's going to help the pollinators, the bees, the butterflies, the birds, the beneficial insects. So we're uh, pre-designing all these native gardens. You tell us your size and your colors and do you have a lot of sun or all shade? And we're going to give you a choice. We'll ship it right to your door. One of the things that I think really resonated there is the degree to which as a, I don't even know if I can call myself an amateur you know, gardener, as someone who's just really unfamiliar with it, how overwhelming it can feel when you go to the, the stores where you would go to attempt to, to purchase all the things that you need to piece together to, to lay the right foundation to care to, for your yard. Could you delve into the ways that you're trying to because you're sim simultaneously trying to educate and sell, yes. I imagine, and and how you go about that. And, and typically, are, are people 
as prospective customers coming to you already inclined to purchase something like this, or is it more about trying to convince people of the efficacy and, and the value that, that this brings to the table? I think my goal, our goal, would be to sell to someone like you, Jeffrey, right? You're a, you're a homeowner, your you know, first home, I would imagine, and you have enough you know, knowledge about landscaping to do the very basic stuff. Maybe growing up, you may have cut the law, cut the grass, but most likely your your family had someone come in. And <laughs> well, I'll do tell that, you, right? gr- growing up in New York, when I moved here, I called it grass trimming. I didn't even know you was mowing the lawn, you know. So it was, it was very new for me. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so like, if we can convince you to do this, and we've really made it, we've we've got to the mainstream, and that's where we want to get to. But to answer the first part of that question, yeah, we're really appealing to people who know a little bit about native plants and want to make decisions and, and allocate resources partially for the the beauty of it and partially for the impact it has on the pollinator population. We definitely, you know, that, uh, that there's a, a term called crossing the chasm when it comes to new products. And you have your early adopters and most products never cross that chasm to to appeal to the mass market. So how are we going to do that? You usually need like, you need an anchor point, something that one application that gets people really interested in, you know, in, in your product that um, is fairly simple. And people in this industry are growers and ag people and they're overthinking it. And I always find opportunity, you know, when you're in an industry where there are a lot of experts so I went through this process of learning about native plants and it really agitated me. It was so hard because you, you know, how do you find out about native plants? Well, you can go to the nursery and they'll show you little pots and say, oh yeah, do this and do this and do that. Well, then you have to wait a year to see how it grows in and it almost always will not be coordinated for you. So then you could, uh, to, to help yourself out, you could, you know, learn about these native plants. How high will it get? What conditions? What kind of soil will it thrive in? And all you have out there are these PDF charts that you have to cross-reference. And I was keeping track of my hours just to design a little plot of land here at my house. And I had like 52 hours invested in just picking out, it was like 60 square feet. And no one is going to do that, right? So that was my when I went into this and Wyatt has all this knowledge about native plants, it's very intuitive for him. And I had to keep saying to him, like, we're appealing to me. We're not appealing to you in this, right? We're going to cut my 52 hours to nothing. And how are we going to do that? And, you know, it, it it's really like, how much do you need to know about these plants when, you know, to, to really enjoy it? I mean, from the, I think it was from Tommy Boy. You know, where his, his dad would say, like, look, I, you know, I, I, I could stick my head up the butt of a, of a cow or I could take the butcher's word for it. Right. I mean, we just want to be the butcher who tells you which is the best <laughs> cut of meat. And you don't need to know what that thing ate and where it came from and how it was transported and how it was slaughtered or anything like that. Right. So how do we how do we cut it down and what's the common feature that everyone wants? Everyone wants pretty flowers. So we started, you know, if you go on our website, 
we're showing you pretty gardens. And that's all you need to know. If you want to dig deeper, you can, you can keep going deeper. All the detail you want about these plants, about these combinations are there. But the fact is native plants work well in communities and we figured out, you know, which, what those communities are. And we go for as, as well as the two of us are able to create good looking gardens. We try to match the colors and get a, and get a theme. And, um, you know, we've done all that homework for you and it just makes it easier for the average person to say yes to the product. Yeah. That, that also resonates a lot. I think particularly from, you know, even a, a product management perspective, the the job is always, you know, to accomplish a task for someone and not for that person to become an expert in whatever it is that that you've built. And so when a tool is introduced into a workflow, there are like o- only so many walls typically that people are, are willing to put up with before they submit. It isn't improving, you know, their productivity and they bail on the whole exercise. Most people don't really care about the, the technology, which I say in air quotes, but it right. does it help you solve the, the problem? And um, we are, you know, we have nice conversations with people about specific plants, but the best conversations are the ones who, you know, people who just, just heard about native plants, but have no idea where to start. And we're, we're developing some, some good relationships and we, but we need to, as you said, we need to go even you know, we need to reach people who don't even know about native plants and maybe know about the, the damage that lawns do on, on the, on the environment. But we don't, you know, that we want to be to that, that mass, that mass level. And, you know, I'm seeing signs we're getting there. When you think about empowering people to use their yards to effectively restore the environment, how and you know, you mentioned crossing the chasm. How how do you how do you do this at scale? You know, both in reach and in impact. How are you thinking about how to grow this business to the level that that you intend to? And you know, what does it look like if if you achieve that that scale? Yeah, like um, the event we were at last night, right? With all these other tech entrepreneurs, two people asked me like, "How are you attracting customers?" And my answer is always, "I have no idea." You know, we we <laughs> are throwing content out there. We're spending a thousand dollars, you know, on a good week on Google ads, but we're getting many more people who are finding us organically. And, you know, the first thing is content. Content has the best value. Uh, if you can make things simple for people and make them interesting and fun, that just, it, it gains momentum over time. So we're doing, but we're still reaching so few people. So yeah, how, how can we, how can we get this out? And I feel like our best asset are these, uh, the, the early adopters, Jeffrey, who are super motivated by it. Okay, so what, what's truly our advantage? Buying Google ads or Facebook ads or even Nextdoor, Reddit is ultimately a losing game, right? The economics are going to shift. If, if you're getting more value out of it, then your competitors are going to get there. And then they're going to also the supplier will charge more. So we know that's not a way to go. And it's just, you don't want to be dependent on that. That's not a good way to have a business. On the flip side, our customers who are really into rest, restoring the, the environment and the habitats for pollinators are motivated to get their neighbor to, to do the same, right? If you bought a car that you like, let's say you bought a Ford, the new Ford Bronco, 
and you liked it, right? You were driving around with the top down. You'll tell people you really like it, but you're not going to be motivated to get your neighbor to buy it. You know, it's you don't care. You don't get anything out of it. But if your neighbor puts in a native garden, then, okay, all of a sudden you're building a little pathway for pollinators that can draw more to you and extend the habitat. So I think, you know, as I look at this business, how can you scale? If we can make it interesting for those people to help spread the word, then I, I feel like we're, we're onto something. So that to me is the opportunity. It's like, a, you know, it is using your customer base to, to tell your story and, you know, make it fun and or rewarding for them. What do you think of that? I like it. I like it a lot. Right. <laughs> I'm sold. I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. <laughs> One of the other things I, I had always thought, especially not having a lawn in my life growing up, was that mowing a lawn, to me, always felt like the, the biggest, potentially the biggest waste of human energy of, of anything that we do as, as people. <laughs> right. That, that we, we spend this time constantly going through the motions of, of doing that for no particularly good reason, just seemed fishy off, off the bat. No, so this is exciting. I'm, I think you've sold me as a prospective customer. <laughs> so I need to do more podcasts is what you're saying. So one, one by one, I could get pod, podcast hosts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask one more, more question here and then we can kind of turn more to some higher level reflections and, uh, and discussions, but all things considered, you know, for, for what you're doing at at my home park, what, what does success mean? You know, how, how do you know you'll have been successful? Great question. It's different than before my last venture, you know, my last venture, I, I needed to prove to myself, to everyone around me that I could be a successful entrepreneur. And you know, we'd go out to dinner and you know, someone would say to like my wife, like, do you realize what he's done? He's built a company from zero to when, you know, 10 million, 15, 20, whatever it was at the time on a tiny bit of capital and equity. And, and my wife would always say, yeah, it's great. But I know that, you know, part of what she was thinking is like, when are we going to see some, some money off of this? When are we going to see an exit off of this? And for so long, I felt like I was moderately successful, but had never, you know, without the exit. And, you know, there, there are plenty of people who are running ongoing businesses that are super successful. They're employing people, they're growing leaders, they're, you know, having an impact, they're making good products. So that is a great part of success. Also, uh, our culture and, you know, for someone's security, the exit is, is also really important. So, you know, the, luckily for this one, I, I don't feel like I have to prove that. I don't, you know, the, the, it's not in it for the financial gain. It is for the impact is how many, you know, how many square yards can we convert to native plants that were not native plants before and how big an impact can that have? So that'll be the measurement. And at the same time, the people who are the younger people who are with me, I want them to learn the entrepreneurial process do it, you know, then go off and do it on their own. Also, I want to educate people. It's fun to talk about and it really is interesting. And I feel like I can explain it to people in a, in a few sentences, whereas no one was able to do that for me at the time. So uh, I want to be able to educate people also on the importance of native plants. 
and it would be nice to, you know, profit will actually allow us to scale more. So I always have this conversation with our growers. Like I say to them, because they're not business people, right? They just grow beautiful plants and they, they like them, you know, they, they gather seeds and they want them to be very pure and, you know, a local ecotype. I say to them, look, I don't need to make money off of this right now. I just need to prove out our concept. Eventually I'll come to you and say like, we got to tighten this up because we need to make money. But for now, we just, we want to prove the concept. And I think we, we are right now. We haven't talked about our success, but we're, you know, we're basically running at three X where we thought our sales were this year so far. And people are finding us and their, their average sale is over $200. And, you know, that, that, that people are buying $200 of native plants from a company they never heard of when they've never bought plants online before and they've probably never worked with native plants. We're seeing a lot of good signs for this. So the question is, we're going to have to balance investors. The investors know this is a mission-based company, so they're not going to be driving for profits as much, but they're still going to want to see profits. So the question is, how do we operate this business in an intelligent manner that we allows us to have free cash flow so we can expand into other states? So the success is how many, how many native plants can we get in the ground that wouldn't have been put in the ground before? Were there any particularly painful mistakes that you experienced at Wireless Environment that the second time around you are explicitly trying to avoid <laughs> with my home park? I'll tell you um, a, a better example is uh, the company I had before, which was called Toolovation. And we started that in 2000. And the, the, the brief story is I moved, I met my wife in Baltimore. She was from here. And her uncle was, was asking me, hey, I need a head of sales and marketing for my internet term life insurance company. And this was late 99. We had just gotten married, loved Baltimore, lived like on the harbor. We'd wake up and we'd see these big ships coming in. And it was, it was really nice. We had a a really nice time there. And I said, I don't want to move. I don't want to live in Cleveland. I'm like you, I'm East coast person. And, you know, I, I just, I didn't, I, I wasn't interested, but they kept working me, working me, working me. And I finally moved here and pretty much that company imploded, you know, do the dot com bubble. Uh, it imploded like the first week I was there. So I had to find a new, a new job. I was invite, introduced to John Nottingham and, and John Spurk of Nottingham Spurk. And they liked my background. They had just launched the spin brush toothbrush. So they said, can we do a similar thing with power tools? Cause I'd come from black and Decker to wall. And I thought this was the greatest idea. And, and we did it. And it, it was a really good idea they had. So along the way we, um, we built this business and we had uh, a deal with true value where they said, okay, if you fund this re we're going to rebate, it's a Christmas thing. Everyone can buy it and then they can send in for rebate and get it for free. They said your rebate, you know, figure about 20% rebate rate. So we increased our price 20% to cover it. And we wound up having like a 72% rebate rate. So it pretty much put the company under because we had to cover that rebate. And it made me think like who you choose as your customers are, is really important for a small business. You want a customer that needs you, not that uses you as a promotional tool and doesn't care about you at all. Because we were selling to Walgreens. We had a similar you know, relationship with them. Everyone was using us 
They were they didn't care about us. So when we started Mr. Beans, I said, I'm not going after these big retailers. I'm going after catalogs and little e-tailers that, you know, would we'd actually be important to and, and would think we can be a big business. So we did that. We launched in 2008 our first product and and built that up. And in 2011, Amazon came knocking. They, they weren't really into lighting. And they said, you want to start selling through us? And we said, we'll give it a shot. And it just turned out to be an amazing partnership with Amazon because we were um, a really high feature and value type of product that people wouldn't know about except for through Amazon. And that just, it, we were their poster child for a while. And uh, it just showed me, you know, who you choose as your customer uh, and how much balance you have in that relationship is, is really important. So, so for now, you know, are we using that for my home park? We're going after individuals, so it's not, it's not really relevant. But on the backside with the growers, yeah, you know, are we significant to a grower? If we're not, we're going to get pushed around. We're going to get the last of the inventory and we're going to be the first one who is told, sorry, we're, we're out. You can't buy this from us. So th- these, you know, there's, there's Michael Porter's five forces, which always said, you know, of, of all the, the forces on your business, who's, who's got the power, who's got the leverage. And that is a huge, you know, it's hugely important issue. Anywhere you don't have leverage, there's a good chance it's going to be used against you. So I'm much more aware of that now. Hmm. Well, one of the things that we were talking about yesterday that I think we can unpack a bit more here is, and I'll, I'll frame it slightly differently than we were talking about it. Cause I think it's interesting when we're talking about mediocrity, which, which we'll, we'll put out there for, for a moment to, to think about it also in contrast to excellence, right. And, and how it is that you're thinking about cultivating a higher bar for ambition and quality in the context of, you know, where we are here in, in Northeast Ohio in, in what maybe, you know, you could describe as a, a latent complacency or, or tolerance for, for mediocrity in, in some regards. So I'm not letting you off easy on this, by the way, Jeffrey. I'm going to ask you <laughs> your observations from, uh, you know, being a, an outsider also. But yeah, I think when, when I first moved here, I was surprised at some of the work that was considered acceptable. And uh, I'd say in like a few categories of service providers, it was advertising agencies, it was public relations, accounting, legal. You know, and I mentioned we work with Jones Day. I, amazing. There's some amazing legal minds in this town. And then there's also some very average uh, in all these categories of service providers. And it just, you know, when I would stand up and say, that's not good enough, I, I always, and, and I still get, it's usually like, well, no one's ever said that to us. It's something like that. Or what do you mean? It's a lot of surprise. And I realized over time, like this is a, there's a culture here of acceptance of, of mediocrity. And it's almost, you know, there's part, partially the, the reason people move here is because things are a little bit easier. They're not as competitive. They're a little bit more, more laid back. And I've grown to enjoy that. I also have grown to enjoy the people. I feel like of anywhere I've lived in, in the country, like the people here are the best mix of sophistication, laid back, kindness, sincerity. This is like the epicenter where, you know, that the Venn 
diagram where all those things meet here. So I so appreciate that. But what drives me crazy is that there is an acceptance of, you know, average, of average service, of average performance. And I think we need to start using that term much more often. And that term that, you know, as I was thinking about this, that term is that's not good enough. And we, you know, I, I tell people there, there are three groups of, uh, of, of life that you interact with that you don't want to make excuses for. Number one, your kids. Okay. You don't want to just say, well, yeah, but he or she, right. But he or, he or she didn't get a lot of sleep last night or, you know, things like that. You start making excuses for your kids and they start living up to those uh, excuses. Employees, same way, right? Like if it's something that you would have done, but I can't expect them to do it. They've got, you know, they've got this going on in their life or they're not an owner. And then the third thing are, are your dogs. Like you make excuses for your dogs and then they're running all over you. But I think <laughs> that, we, we have a tendency here. I, do. I see that one a lot. <laughs> we have a tendency to make excuses. And, um, you know, instead of saying that's not good enough. And I, I just... You know, I, I, I feel it here. Like what the, I've been living here since 2000, so 23 years. And when people say, you like it here? I say, I'm, I'm starting to get used to it. And then I, I really like it here, but I can't get used to the acceptance of, you know, of just average, average, you know, quality, the food or some of these restaurants around here that people consider really, really good and, and frequent all the time. I mean, I just can't believe that this is, yeah, and, and there's there's a group of people here who are just too insulated. They're not traveling to Seattle. They're not going to Austin. They're not going down to Miami, you know, frequently enough. And they're not experiencing what's going on. You know, Boston, a city I've spent a lot of time in, basically built a city b- bigger than Cleveland in the last 10 years in the seaport area. I don't know if you've been there, but it's amazing. And there's all kinds of, you know, business going on and the amount of uh, businesses that come out of those universities. And then you look at a, a university like Case Western and it's like, why there's so many smart people there and there's so much good going on. Why are we not, why are we not getting companies and innovators out of that? I don't, I don't quite understand it. I just know that there's a cloud of, of this here and it, it drives me crazy. And I, I throw it at you, Jeffrey. What do, what do you notice? There's a, a Paul Graham article that I've I've revisited recently. Um, I think it's called "The Anatomy of Determination," but he talks about ambition a lot in this. And essentially, what I took away from it is that it, it's 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 kind of that old aphorism that you know you are a combination of those you you surround yourself with. And then I think pulling on what what you talked about with kind of the insulation, I also feel pretty strongly that travel is somewhat you know. The, the enemy of, of bias and, and prejudice that you might have because it expands perspective and shows you what else is out there. And to me, I think coming from a, a city like New York, where, I mean, it, to a degree, average and mediocrity is, as you've described it, is kind of squashed right. because from, you, you know, think about restaurants, like only the best restaurants are going to survive because right. the, the rest just don't make it over time. And I, I think, fortunately, like you can elevate ambition and, and there's a lot you can do to increase it. But I, I don't, my, my sense is like people just haven't seen enough ambition here. 
and coming from a, a place where it's it's really celebrated uh, as kind of a core cultural tenant, I think that might be part of the challenge. But I do know is that when you take people who, and I, I think it's it's kind of part and parcel to entrepreneurship, but when you take people who are ambitious and trying to build things and and put them together, it it does bring out the that in in themselves and and everyone around them. Yeah, well, I look. I listened to a number of podcasts uh, before. You know, we we decided to do this, and you, there's some great stories on the metro parks. Like, what a ambitious entrepreneurial you know organization that is, and how amazing, and that's world class. And yeah, I like. Yeah. Those are the things that I get really inspired by and would love to exchange ideas with. Yeah. You know, there's, well, that's good to hear. Yeah. There's, but <laughs> when, you know, when I came here, I was surprised at how many people worked in like a family business or were using the connections of their uh, forefathers, let's say, or is that the right term? The people who they you know, preceded them and they came back here to, use those connections and use that work that someone else did. Whereas, you know, the, the, in other cities, I just think there's people who are trying to make, make it on their own. In fact, you know, you just can't come back and, and count on that. So uh, it's, it's uh, partially self-selecting people who want to be comfortable wind up here. And, and that makes for a, a really nice lifestyle. But we are now, I think we're a fourth tier city. I don't think we're even a third tier city. You know, when I look at cities, I think there's no city like New York or L.A., right? And then you have your, probably your, you know, your Austin's, Miami's, Chicago's are second tier. And then your third tier are, you know, not Cleveland anymore. Maybe Columbus has moved up to third tier. And now we're in this fourth tier and we have to, we have to accept that. Like, why, why are we here and how are we going to? you know, get things rolling again. And are people really just okay with what, where we are right now? I don't know. I, I get, I get uh, disappointed in that. And then, you know, and then I spend more time with people and I'm like, well, they're such great people here, but uh, you know, can you have both? I think you can. I think you can. I don't think that one excludes the other. I think we can have a nice place to live, but with more ambition and, and like a, people saying that's not good enough more often and, you know, making people fulfill their promise instead of making excuses for people. Yeah. No, I, I think there's, there's a lot to that. And I think in a lot of ways that from my perspective it is kind of the, the purpose of, of the podcast, right? It was to, to try and celebrate the, the people and encourage the people who are, are trying to raise the, the bar. Because I, that that was to me one of the starkest differences between, you know, if you're out in San Francisco, it's just celebrated when when you try and and you know whether or not you're succeeding, it's you know, are you trying to raise the bar? That's the whole ethos of it, and that is celebrated. And I think we have to do more of that celebration. Yeah, and that's a really good point. That it's it's a you know they say they celebrate failure, and which is always an odd concept to me, like. But here there is, you are, it's held against you, the failure. I think it's neutral maybe out there. But as far as raising the bar, that's a really good point. Like it, even if you, if you fail, but you made a, uh, you know, a, an incremental improvement in something, it, it's looked at differently there. And here, I, I, I don't know that anyone would 
would ever give people credit for that. And I don't know that that's the, the mindset here as much. So it's a good point. Yeah. I don't know. I'd love, I'd love to, I'd love to have like a, a bigger conversation about this and where, what the roots are, you know, we went again, this event we went to last night, which was a mixer for tech entrepreneurs. I was hoping to meet some young people that were like of a whole different mindset than, you know, than I'm used to. And I bumped into you and Patrick right away. And I'm like, Oh great. The young people and doing stuff and kind of ended there. I didn't really see anyone once of the, you know, the other people looked like me. So I don't know. I don't know what uh, is going to do it. I, I have this fantasy that like in Ohio city where you are and in that whole uh, West side area, there's this group of, you know, creators and innovators that I just don't see because I don't get out much anymore. I hope that's the case, but are you coming across those groups? I think they're, I think they're there. I think you have to, to, to actively seek them out. But I, I do, I do think that there are, a lot of people building really cool stuff here. And I, I, I do feel, and again, this was the whole impetus for the podcast is that most people are not aware of the people who are building things, right. whether that's, and not even entrepreneurship, it could be art, could be, you know, whatever it is, but who are, are trying to create, I think it's there. Well, thanks. Thanks for pulling all these people together because it is, it's a whole library now of, you know, ideas and inspiration. And, you know, it's great to learn from someone else's success and, and especially from their failures because you're less likely to repeat it. Well, thank you. Well, we can bookend our, our conversation here. I have one more question and then our, our traditional closing question, which is, is pretty easy. But I, I'll put out there, if there's anything not obvious that we uh, haven't talked about that you think is important, it, you know, across any of, of your endeavors or, or learnings that, that you would like to highlight? Yeah, I think having a, a, your own board, both business and personal, mm. has been essential for, for my success. And even though I had a good background, I went to Harvard Business School and, you know, you, a lot of times you come out, you think you know everything, but quite the opposite. Like I've, I've taken on and I've learned that I don't need to know everything. I need to know the people who know specific things and are really good at knowing things. And surrounding myself with those people has been essential for my success personally, you know, advice with kids, relationships, and then and business also. So when, when I see a young, you know, uh, entrepreneur, business person, and they're trying hard to make it look like they know more than they do or know everything. Uh, you know, I always want to remind people like just know the person who you can go to to get that answer is really important. And then these uh, these groups like I'm in a Visage group that has some incredibly successful people. In fact, like out of 18 when I joined, I'd say I was like the least intelligent, least successful person. Everyone should be part of a group like that. And, you know, it, it will, it will change your life. And the thing that my Visage leader has taught me is the quality of your life improves with the quality of your questions. And it's proven to be really true. I think it's just a, a very simple idea. Ask better questions and it just opens you up for, you know, a broader experience and, and bigger thinking. 
bigger opportunities. Hmm. Well, well, we'll close it out here with our traditional closing question, which is tied to Cleveland and is uh, for a hidden gem for something that, that other folks may not know about, but, oh, I knew but perhaps they should. I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> you were going to ask this. And it's I, the uh, only surefire question. Yeah. <laughs> hidden gem. I think so many people say the Metro parks, we live in Chagrin Falls. We use the Metro parks like nonstop and there's different parts of it. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you what the hidden gem is, is fly fishing for steelhead and the Chagrin river. It is insane. Oh. Like it's world-class and it's so accessible and it's so beautiful and it connects you with nature in such a way. But these fish are, they're phenomenal. They're monsters. They take a lot of experience, skill. It takes a lot of time, but it's so rewarding. And the fact that you can, from my house, I can actually walk to the river, be in the river, fish for, you know, lunch hour and then, and then come out. And I rarely catch anything. I have to admit to you. So, but I don't care. <laughs> like it is just so resetting and, and in, inspiring and you're out there. I could go like some days, three hours and not see a person and just walk up the river. It's, it's spectacular. That is spectacular. Well, David, this, uh, this is an awesome conversation. <laughs> I really uh, appreciate you coming on and, uh, and sharing your, your story. Yeah. Thank you, Jeffrey. I really enjoyed talking to you and, uh, exploring some of these issues. You pulled out a lot of things that I, I haven't always, or even, you know, verbalized, but it's really, you know, it, it's, I hope it can help some people. And uh, if not, I'll play it for my kids and get them to <laughs> criticize me about it. So it'll have some, you know, some impact one way or another for me, but thank you so much. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> If, if people had anything they wanted to follow up with you about to, to, to criticize you or, or uh, celebrate this, what, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, David at my home park. Perfect. All right. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jeffrey. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.